0: As you're being seated, you can turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 8. Those words we just sang were taken from Isaiah chapter 6. As the cherubim and seraphim, the great and mighty angelic beings of the Lord, flew around the throne room beholding the glory of Jesus, as John's Gospel tells us. They beheld the glory of Jesus and veiled their eyes and shouted, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And then after that, the Lord commissioned Isaiah to go as his messenger to an unbelieving people and to preach the good news that many of them would not believe. And we picked up on that message last week in Isaiah chapter 7. As we saw the prophecy of Emmanuel, and for the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at Isaiah 7-12, through 12, the book of Emmanuel, these prophecies that point us towards the promise of God to deliver a promise that was given a sign, a sign of a child that would be born named Emmanuel, God with us. Today we're going to be looking at all of Isaiah chapter 8, but uh, for the sake of time, we're we'll going to be focusing on and right now reading verses 9 through 20. By the way, I have my scripture verse bookmarked, Randy. Uh, that's the joke this morning, those that weren't here. First service, he had a little hard time finding Joel. <laughs> he found it. Bookmarks, okay? Bookmarks. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 9 through 20. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. For the Lord God spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense And a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. A trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. This is the word of the Lord. I wonder, have you ever done something that's so upset or frustrated or disturbed or annoyed another person, be it a spouse, a parent, a friend, that they said, Oh, I can't even look at you right now. Or maybe you've been on the other side of that. Maybe you've been the one who, who just could not believe what somebody just said or did. And you said, I can't even look at you. I have to look away. In a sense, that, you know, it's, it's expressing our disappointment Our frustration where we we want to look away, it's kind of like acting out the silent treatment. Like not only am I not going to talk to you, I don't even want to see you because it just reminds me of your failure. Ancient kings like the ones in Isaiah's day that we're reading about. If the king were to turn his face or hide his face from someone, it meant the king was unhappy. He was refusing to bless the person and it could cost you your life as we're going to see in a little bit when we look at Esther in the month of January. But if the king showed you his face, and that's that's a saying, means that the king looks upon you and smiles upon you, that's a good thing. That's a blessing. So what do we do when God says to a people, I can't even look at you. I'm hiding my face from you. That's what the people of God were dealing with in Isaiah's day. The reality that they had messed up, and now God was hiding His face. Now, for a quick summary of the historical context. Some of you, many of you were here last week, you heard the history. It's, it's important to understand what's going on. So I'm going to summarize here how, how Judah, which is what's left of God's people under King David's uh, lineage, Judah is in a tough situation. There's uh, two nations, Syria and Israel or Ephraim, that are coming up to attack. And they're going to lay siege to Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. And the reason they're doing that is because they're trying to pressure Jerusalem and Judah into joining an alliance against the superpower, Assyria. They're the big bad guys. They're trying to take over all the land. And so Syria and and Ephraim are saying to Judah, hey, join us or die, basically. Help us fight against Assyria. Or be squashed. And looking at the options, Judah says, we're going to appeal to Assyria. And we're going to say, hey, we'll do anything you want if you'll just help us. And God has spoken to his people, both comfort and warning. He speaks to Judah, first comfort, because he says, look, these, these nations that are coming up against you and that are laying siege to you, they're almost done. You know, That's what Emmanuel was all about. A child is going to be born and he's going to be named Emmanuel, and before he's even old enough to know what he's doing. These two nations are going to be nothing. Comfort my people. You're you're okay. But also warning, because you're looking to Assyria, this this ungodly nation, and you're putting your trust in and swearing your obedience and loyalty and and, and money and everything to Assyria to help you out. You're looking to Assyria to save you. Don't do that. God's warning His people. Don't fear these things that can't hurt you, and don't trust these things that can't help you. And yet, they're not obeying. Most of the country is paying no mind to God's direction. And God says, basically, I can't even look at you guys right now. You disgust me. I'm hiding my face from this people. So what, what do we do as faithful people, as those who wish to be faithful to God? What do we do when we live in a land and in a world that rejects God's way. A world that fears the wrong things and trusts the wrong things and will not listen to God's voice. Isaiah, one of the few people still faithful to God in his own day, says this in verse 17. I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding His face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in Him. If you were with us the past several months, as we were looking in Matthew 22, 23, 24, Matthew 25, there's this idea of Jesus saying, I'm going to come back, I'm going to return. And until I do, my faithful people will wait for me. And we saw again and again how that waiting is not a passive sitting around doing nothing, but waiting for the Lord is an active process of trusting Him and living faithfully before Him. So so as people who wish to wait for the Lord, How do we live in a faithless land? God's word to and through Isaiah guides us on how we wait for and hope in the Lord when he hides his face. And the first thing we see is we we don't follow our fears. Don't follow your fears. Now, we may know how the history plays out. But the people in Isaiah's day didn't know what would happen. All they knew was that these two armies are coming up to surround us, and they're threatening us, and they're going to take away our homes and our lives. And you can imagine the headlines that would have been in the newspapers in those days. Conspiracy! Syria and Ephraim team up to attack Judah. Will Assyria get here in time to rescue us? Ten things you need to know before the siege. We tend to think of prophets as the doom and gloom kind of people, right? They're the ones who are going around saying, the end is near, the end is near, disaster is coming. But but in this case, Isaiah had a different role. When the world around them was speaking of doom and gloom and disaster and fear, Isaiah was sent to say, hey, it's okay. The end is not near. It's going to be fine. The message in verses 9 and 10 was addressed to the enemies of God's people. Be broken, you peoples, be shattered, Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Go ahead, strap on your armor. Come up and fight. You're going to be shattered. Take counsel together. Yeah, make some plans, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word. Tell us what you're going to do, but it's not going to stand, for God is with us. In case you're wondering, those who were here last week, that that last phrase, God is with us, yes, that's the same phrase we looked at last week, Emmanuel. God with us. He was reminding his people that because he was with them, because he had determined to protect his people, they did not need to be afraid. Just as it was in Psalm 2, the psalmist writes that the kings of earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Again, that word counsel, conspiracy, against the Lord and against his anointed, his king, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. God, he thinks it's funny that they think they can go against him. We can so easily feel intimidated by nations, by systems, by corporations, by powers in the world that threaten us, that oppose us, and that seem to have the real ability to shape the world and history the way they want it to go. And that's a very natural human response for us to feel afraid or intimidated by something much bigger than us and more powerful than us. But God intends that His people have a different reaction. In verse 12, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear nor be in dread. Your fear, sociologists have learned, fear is a, a uh, contagious thing. It's, it's, um, it's socially transmitted, you could say. You know, they have trained Uh, mice through electroshock or whatever to fear certain objects. And then they'll introduce new mice into that environment. And very quickly, those new mice, even though they've never had any adverse reaction to this object, they will fear it because they've been taught to do so by the other mice. Humans will do the same thing. You can play mind games with people. If If you get a group of people who want to trick somebody into being afraid of a certain sound you know, if you ever want to really freak people out on an airplane, act like you're act like you're a pilot and you're terrified by that sound you're hearing. Okay? You can trick people into being afraid. I've never done that. I would never do that. I'm sorry. That just popped into my head for some reason. But sociologists and psychologists have tricked people into being afraid. Because you get enough of people to be afraid to say they're afraid of something, and other people will just go along with it. Fear's contagious. So when the people around you in the world are freaking out about something because of alliances or nations or corporations or every manner of secret conspiracy or evil scheme, God is just saying, so what? So what? Don't let that get in your head. Don't let that mind game get to you. Why? Because of verse 11. God tells us to look at things differently. In verse 11, Isaiah says, "The Lord spoke thus to me with His strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people." I love the image. Keep that verse up there. Actually, he says, "Don't walk the way of this people." You know, they are living in fear. They're going around terrified. They're going. They're they're talking about conspiracies and and crazy things. I mean, who would ever do that, really, today? But, but you know, don't do that. Don't walk in their way. But God doesn't just tell us not to do that. He also, in this verse, shows us why we're able to not walk in that way. Why we're able to not be afraid. The Lord spoke how? With His strong hand upon me. You know, a kid that would be too terrified to go down a dark hallway will boldly walk down that hallway if mom or dad has got their hand around them, comforting them, so that they know there's nothing to be afraid of. The Lord does that. He says, my strong hand is on you. And now you know there's nothing to be afraid of. So now you know you don't have to be afraid of what they're afraid of. In the words of, of Paul in Romans 8:31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What possibly could harm us if Almighty God is on our side and watching over us? So don't follow your fears. It's one of the ways that you wait for the Lord. The next thing we see in this passage, how to wait for the Lord, is you don't stumble over your salvation. Don't stumble over your salvation. You know, it's not enough just to tell somebody not to worry or be afraid, is it? I mean, it's actually kind of frustrating when you have a serious concern or fear and somebody says, oh, that's no, it's okay, don't be afraid. You know, if you've got a kid who's afraid of the dark, are they going to be like, oh, I don't need to be afraid? That's great. No, it doesn't work like that. And in fact, it's, it's, it's very frustrating Whether you're afraid of spiders or storms, bullies, bad grades, or a market crash, stock market crash, whatever it is, just simply saying don't be afraid isn't enough. Because fear, worry, can be a very legitimate and real response to a threat. To circumstances that threaten us, fear can be a responsible reaction. Because what, after all, is fear? Well, fear in a sense, is recognizing the power that something has to harm us, or at least the power we think something has to harm us. Fear is that emotional and physical response to the power we see that something has to bring us pain or harm. Fear is that recognition and response to that power, whether it's a spider that's just going to do something in my ear, I don't know, or the dark that's hiding some threat or a storm that might rip my roof off. I'm recognizing the power it has, and I'm responding to it. And so it's understandable that God's people under King Ahaz were afraid of the countries marching against them to destroy them, but he doesn't simply just say, hey, just stop being afraid of them. Let's just take that fear switch and flip it to off. No, he, he redirects our focus After telling them not to fear what the people around them fear, he says in verse 13, But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. Now, a lot of times when we talk about fearing God, you'll hear it explained, Oh, well, no, it doesn't mean to be afraid of God. It means that you should reverence God. You should be in awe of God. And there's truth. There's times where that's kind of how the language takes us. But in Isaiah's case here, it's very clear. Because he doesn't just say, let the Lord be your fear. He says, let him be your dread. There's no mistaking that. Who has the greatest power to bring us harm? Who can do us the most damage? It's God. It's God. We need to rightly fear being opposed to God, of being against him, of doing the opposite of what he calls us to do. The greatest recognition of power over us should be the recognition of the power that God has. And therefore, our greatest fear, really speaking, should be God. That's a fine line we walk when we talk about fearing the Lord. Should we be afraid of Him? In a sense, yes. But He does not just have power to harm us. He is more than that. He is more than a threat. He is also our Savior. To fear God is to see His power. But as His children, we also trust Him. And see his goodness So after telling us, uh, if God is for us, who can be against us?" Paul goes on in Romans 8 verse 37 to say, "No, in all these things, he, after listing a bunch of threats, he says, "In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth nor anything else in all creation, nor the armies of Assyria, Syria, or or any other nation, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But when we neglect to do that, when we neglect to see not only God's power, but also His intention to bless His children, when we neglect that, when we look to God not as the mightiest power out there, but find a greater threat somewhere else, and when we look to God not as the one who uses His power to bless us, but look to somewhere else for blessing. We stumble over the very thing that was supposed to save us. Beginning in verse 14. He, the Lord, will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense. A sanctuary to some, but a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. A trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. That that verse 14 is quoted in the New Testament more times than I think any other verse in the Old Testament. Matthew quotes it, Luke quotes it, Peter quotes it, Paul quotes it. They all keep bringing it up to talk about Jesus. They're all in agreement that Jesus is the stone that people stumble over, the stone that was meant to be for salvation. But we get tripped up over it. How do we get tripped up over our salvation? Well, it's when we want salvation from God, but not God's way. We see another example of this in Isaiah 30. Thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and in rest shall you be saved, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. And you said, no, we will flee upon horses. Well, therefore you shall flee away. And you said, we will ride upon swift steeds, and therefore your pursuers shall be swift. God says, look, if you want me to help you and save you, it's on my terms and it's my way. And the people were saying, nope, because God was saying, rest, let me handle it. And they said, no, we've got to get out of here. And God says, you can run, but it won't help. Because there's a specific way that God saves us. And if we don't accept salvation in his way, we stumble over that salvation. There's a I don't know. I'm not the type to often tell jokes in my sermons, but there's one that, that, to me at least, first service didn't agree, but to me, really struck as in keeping with this. Okay? It's a joke I remember when I was like nine, ten years old. And I remember it being very funny, but maybe it's not as funny as I remember it. It's a story of a man who, who, who's, whose entire community was faced with a flood and, and they're all evacuating and he says, No! The Lord will rescue me. And as the waters rise, his neighbor comes by in a boat. And says, Mike, get on, get on, get on. We're going to get out of here. We're going to get to higher ground. He says, no, the Lord will rescue me. The waters rise and get up to the roof. And he climbs up on the roof and he's waiting. the Coast Guard comes by. They've got a boat. And they're urging him to get on. He says, no, no, I trust in the Lord. And the Lord will save me. And they can't convince him to get in the boat. And so the, the, the second boat leaves. And the waters rise and rise till it's up on the very top of the roof and he's, he's holding on for dear life and a helicopter comes in and it drops a rope and they say, grab the rope, we're here to rescue you. And he says, no, the Lord will save me. Finally, the helicopter leaves, the waters rise, the man dies. Hilarious joke, right? So, so then he goes to heaven and he's standing before the Lord and he's a little confused and bitter. And he says, Lord, I trusted you to save me. I told everybody you would save me. The Lord looks at him and says, I sent you two boats and a helicopter. What more did you need? Sometimes we expect that God, you like that a little better than the first service did. We expect that God's salvation has to look a certain way. And if it doesn't look the way we want it to look, we miss it. We won't do what he tells us to do to be saved. We do this. Uh, Naaman, another example. We looked at Elisha a few months back, if you remember, the story of Naaman who, who had leprosy and wanted to be healed. And he came to the prophet and, and, and asked Elisha to be healed. And, and Elisha said, hey, just go dip in the Jordan seven times, you'll be saved. you'll be cleaned. And how did Naaman react? Do you remember? Was he excited? Was he thankful? No. He was bitter. He was angry. It's like, Jordan, that dirty, dirty water. I've got cleaner pools back in Damascus. I I thought that the prophet would come out and wave his hands and say some mighty words over me and and heal me. And he almost missed the salvation and healing of God because it didn't look the way he expected. We do that too. We do that too. We look at the world and see what our friends and neighbors and others are doing to, to deal with the fears that they have and the anxieties they have. We put our trust in money or in connections. We seek popularity so we won't be afraid of loneliness. We align ourselves and support powerful figures in politics. And we, we count on government to solve all of our problems. And God says, no, that's not how I'm determined to save you. Salvation doesn't always look the way you think. And we we think, we come to believe in our subconscious maybe, that, that if God's not going to sweep in, with a mighty army or a political victory or a financial windfall or whatever it is we're hoping for, then He's no real Savior at all. And we stumble over our salvation and miss it. As I said, the New Testament authors applied this verse to Jesus because He was the salvation of God's people, but it didn't look the way that anybody else thought it should. And the people of His day asked the same questions we ask today. You mean salvation isn't going to come by taking power in government if we just overthrow the government and have all the power? Salvation isn't about me being more moral and better and holier than other people. You you mean to tell me that salvation is is recognizing and admitting that I am more helpless than I realize and more guilty than I want to admit and that only Jesus taking my place in punishment can deliver me from my fears? Yes. Yes. Anything short of that is not God's salvation. And if we're looking for anything else, we stumble over God's way of saving us. So how do we wait? How do we wait when God hides His face? First, we don't follow our fears. and You don't stumble over your salvation. The last thing is we don't turn from what is true. The last warning here is actually very practical because when God seems to hide His face, when we are confused, we seek answers, don't we? We want, to, we want somebody to explain things to us. We want advice. We want clarity. But when we seek those things, it's important we go to the right source. Verse 19 and 20, when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Now, I don't want you to tune me out because you're not currently consulting a necromancer. This is actually a very practical idea. When we're scared, we try to find answers that make us feel better. Right? When we're scared, we go looking for answers that make us feel better. Mediums and necromancers mentioned here, they're, they're people who pretend or claim to communicate with the spirits of the dead. Maybe that because they're dead, they have insight that we don't understand. For the people in Isaiah's day, they didn't believe that just one God was true and all other gods were false. They believed that all the gods were true. And so when you needed answers, when you needed some help or some input, you would, you would consult Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, sure. But then you'd also go check out and see what the prophets of Baal had to say. And maybe you'd make an offering to Moloch and see what Molech had to say, or Isis in Egypt, or one of the other, uh, you know, one of the other gods. And, and eventually you'd settle on whatever answer kind of suited what you already wanted to hear you, you'd go with whatever God supported what you liked to hear what made you feel the best now maybe you're not checking out your horoscope in the astrology pages or calling the psychic hotline after your quiet time I really hope none of you are doing that and they're really but I'm guessing probably not but what does this mean? I mean, just because we're not going after those mediums and psychics, so is this of no use to us? I would say this actually is very relevant to us. Because even if our pursuit of answers is not towards the supernatural, we look in many different corners for answers that, that should be drawn from God's Word. I mean, how many times do we look to the view of a political party to tell us what's good and what's right? How often do we let popular opinion shape our opinions? How often do we look to friends and peers and magazine covers to tell us what's beautiful and what our body should look like? How often do we trust a vague spiritual feeling that we get, even though it doesn't line up with what God has already told us? It's not that such things can't be true. I mean, sometimes popular opinion or political parties or even our, our experience, spiritual experiences and feelings, they can be true. I mean, A broken clock is right twice a day, right? But whatever truth they have, they are not a source of truth. They're only true when they agree with God's truth. That's what Isaiah warns the people in verse 20 regarding the mediums. The same is true for us today. Anything else we look at, to the teaching and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. There is no light. There is no wisdom. There's no insight. There's no truth in them. Do you want answers? Do you want clarity? Do you want direction? Whatever advice or input you receive, you measure it against what God has already revealed. Remember, Isaiah's problem is that God is hiding His face from His people. He's not showing up and speaking the way they want Him to. The bad guys seem to be winning, and Isaiah is reminding the people that even if God hides His face, He's already told us what we need to know. He's already given us His word, His message. The same is true today in Hebrews chapter 1. We're told that long ago, at at many times, and in many different ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days... He has spoken, has spoken, it's done, spoken by His Son. God's told us what we need to know and we should not expect or seek more. All we seek is wisdom to apply what He has already said. We don't go off looking for a fresh revelation or new answers. It's easy for me to say that the application of this is, just go read your Bible, people! I'm not going to tell you not to read your Bible, but I am going to tell you that the application is more than that because what's going to happen is many of you Many of you are going to read your Bibles, and that's great. But after you read your Bible, you're also going to listen to talk radio, or you're going to go read a New York Times best-selling book, or you're going to listen to what your friends have to say about the matter. And, And mentally, you're going to put God's holy, perfect, eternal Word in the same category as all those other sources of information. When instead, this is the, this is the gold standard. This is, this is what we measure truth against. And every other bit of advice and insight and direction and answer that you get has to be measured against this. And if it has no, none of this in it, if it does not match with this, it has no dawn. It has no truth. God loves you too much to hide his truth, necessary truth, in places that you have to go looking. He's not going to make you search. He's revealed Himself. And though God seems hidden to the world, He speaks clearly today in His written Word in the Bible. But He has spoken, if you give me another minute or two here, He's spoken even more clearly than that. God has revealed His face to us, not hidden it. He's revealed it in a way that cannot be hidden again. When, what Isaiah And the people in God's day wanted and craved and needed was to see the face of God in blessing. That God would turn His face to them and give them success, abundance, victory, protection, whatever it was. But now, for us today, God has shown His face in a better and in a lasting way. Jesus tells us in John 14, He says, Whoever has seen me has seen God the Father. Whoever sees Jesus sees God. In Jesus, God has given us a lasting, enduring blessing that cannot be taken away because He has removed our sin. He has demonstrated His love, and He has once and for all blessed us in a way that can't expire or be hidden. In Jesus, the God who hides His face reveals His face to us. And what He reveals to us is merciful pardon for sin. And so those who wait for the Lord as He hides His face do not wait in vain. In a faithless age and in a faithless world, we wait with hope and with confidence. And remember, waiting doesn't mean standing around looking at your watch. We wait for the Lord by doing what He's called us to do until He comes. Because God has not hidden His face from us, but has revealed it in Jesus. If you've worshipped with us regularly you know that we always end our worship with a benediction that's a part of our tradition our heritage benediction latin means good word good speaking And the reason we end our worship with that is because we 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 want god's grace to be the last word you know the last word in our service is not some triumphant thing that we sing it's not some charge that i give you to go out and do these good things here's your to-do list people of god Now go out and do it. The last word is not us in prayer commending things to God. The last word in our worship is God's grace to you, which is how you do all the things He calls you to do. I'm going to give you a sneak peek at our benediction from this morning because it relates, and I don't want you to miss it. I want you to hear the connection. In Numbers chapter 6, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. No longer hiding his face. The Lord turns and his face shines upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance. That's just a fancy word for face. Lift up his face to you and give you peace. So shall they put my name on the people of Israel and I will bless them. So as we prepare to hear that benediction, we're going to sing. We're going to sing as people who wait upon the Lord. And as we wait, we do not grow weary in waiting. Because God has lifted up His face to us. We have seen it in Jesus Christ. And that is a face of blessing. A blessing of grace. A blessing of peace. And it gives us strength. And so as we wait upon the Lord, our strength rises and we wait with joy. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we, we do, no doubt, live in a world that, that has turned from You and that has deserved, has indeed earned, for You to hide Your face. And at times, it even feels in our hearts like Your face is hidden when we hurt, when we struggle, when we're confused, when we feel weak, when we feel overwhelmed, when we feel powerless to change things. But You are not hidden. You have given us Your strong hand on our shoulder that we, so that we do not need to follow our fears. You have given us Jesus Christ to be our sanctuary and not our stumbling stone. You have given us Your truth so that we do not need to turn elsewhere for our answers, but You have revealed to us all we need to know. We thank You that You have not only shown us Yourself, but as You reveal Yourself to us, as You lift up Your face to us, we are strengthened, we receive grace, and we are blessed. Fill our hearts with that joy as we go forth today, we pray. Amen.